from famous historical locations to lesser-known areas found in small towns, history leaves shadows that people today can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. Hello everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. I am your host Ariel and today I'm going to be talking about some haunted sports stadiums and it might surprise you that some of the ghosts have nothing to do with sports. Sports are a big part of who I am. My parents were coaches. My father was a PE teacher. My whole life I played sports. I tried everything growing up but nothing really stuck except for volleyball. Now that is a sport that I'm actually good at and I love but I also love watching all sports on TV and during the Olympics I'm glued to that TV for two full weeks. I was so happy to learn that sports stadiums are a hotspot for paranormal activity because now I have an excuse to do some really cool sports history. As always, I wanted to give a shout out to my amazing Patreons. Thank you all so much for your support for the show. You guys rock. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon and help support the show, please go down to the link down below in the show notes and you can sign up. You get some fun bonus episodes every month as well as a thank you card in the mail with two stickers with my logo that you can put anywhere you want on your computer on your car the list is endless i hope that you all had a great halloween and the holidays are here and i'm so excited normally i'm not a fan of christmas halloween is my favorite holiday but this year i am really excited to decorate and listen to christmas music and i don't know what it is but i think it chalks it up to the fact that 2020 was horrible for everyone and i just need an excuse to have some extra cheer in my life right now i got some new itunes reviews i want to go over really quick I got one from, and I don't know how to say this, so I'm just going to spell it. It's X-Y-Z-K-A-T-Y. And they said, I love this podcast and Ariel's personality. I've noticed that she really is developing her own style and technique lately. She does a great job and the content is fun and entertaining. And another review I got was from MGC04241982. And they said, I was listening while folding laundry and doing housework. It is entertaining and the host is absolutely amazing. Talk to her on Instagram and she's so awesome. Definitely one of the best podcast for all things spooky. So thank you both so much for those reviews. I am so glad that you guys are enjoying my work. I'm having so much fun making these podcasts. I love learning and exploring all areas of history as well as the paranormal and getting to share this fun information with you and also spark your interest in history was my main goal for making this podcast. So thank you all so much for that incredible support and I really appreciate any kind words you guys send me. And speaking of Instagram, just really quick, I wanted to say that if anyone has been emailing me on Instagram, I found that some of your messages for whatever reason go into a spam folder that I did not know existed until just a couple of days ago. So if I missed any of your uh, emails, I am so sorry. I swear I did not even know they were there. I, I was... I, I am tech savvy and then I'm not. I think I know everything and then I realize like, oh my goodness, how did I miss this tab or this little section? I, I'm still making mistakes, but I'm trying really hard to get back to everyone who's ever emailed me or anything like that. So if you have ever done that and I have not gotten back to you, I promise there's nothing wrong. I just somehow missed it and I'm doing my best to write you guys back. Um, so yeah, so I'm really sorry if you are one of the ones that I just had emailed recently and I'm like, oh, my God, you emailed me a month ago. I'm so sorry. I didn't even see it. So that's always what happens. I swear I'm not trying to not talk to you or anything. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to let everyone know that that's what's been going on there. 
I have decided that I am going to be doing a Christmas listener episode. I'm going to be going back to that old tradition of telling ghost stories for Christmas, and I will also be talking about the history as to why that is even an old tradition. So I have a few stories that I already have gotten emails from, but I think I need a few more. So if you have a personal, true paranormal story or a paranormal story that even happened to a good friend of yours, um, you can even make it anonymous if you want. Just please tell me not to use your name, and I will not. Um, you can email me that story to historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com, and you will be put into the next listener episode I'm going to be doing. I just have one more thing to talk about before we get started, and it is about how you can help save a family-owned theme park called the Enchanted Forest that is found in Oregon. I have never been to this theme park, but it is definitely on my bucket list. The Enchanted Forest was created by a man named Roger Tofty and his family. Roger created a whole theme park by hand with the help of his entire family. And even though he is now in his 90s, he is still enjoying making new things for the park. This place is so cool. It is all hand built from concrete and it really looks like an enchanted forest right out of the old classic storybooks that we all know and love. Roger and his family have been running this park for coming up on 50 years. In 2001, it will celebrate its 50th anniversary and they were doing really great until COVID hit. This park is seasonal and and it is only open in the summertime and they were not able to open until almost the complete end of their normal season run and then they got hit with bad fires causing even more worry and money loss. This family has been through so much stress in just this last year alone and those of us in the theme park community such as myself want to help. If you have a love for zany, fun, roadside, hand-built attractions, then please check out their GoFundMe page and I have the link down below in the show notes to see how you can help them out. They also put their gift store online so you can buy like a t-shirt or a hat or some kind of a fun souvenir that they would usually sell in the gift shop when it's open. Also, please check out some videos from my favorite YouTuber Justin Scard as he explores the park and also in his newest video he just made that talks about all the hardships the family has gone through and why it is so important to history and the good old American dream that we all help keep this park alive. So again, those links are down below. Thank you so much for taking your time to listen. All right, everybody, it's time to get this episode started. Have you ever been to a sporting event? If you have, then you will know that the kind of energy these places gives off is intense. The crowd cheering, the players yelling at each other to communicate, the losing team's emotions versus the winning team's. So many highs and lows goes on in such a short few hours, and then the game is over. The players leave the field, the crowd goes home, leaving nothing but a big, empty building and field behind. It is in this empty dark time that security guards and staff who are left still cleaning up have claimed to see shadows and tunnels, hearing footsteps downstairs, and even seen full-bodied apparitions walk across the fields before disappearing never to be seen again. I will discuss all of these strange occurrences and more after, of course, our monstrous moment. Stories of encounters from strange beasts lurking deep in the forests, on snowy mountaintops, and in dark caves have been told throughout the generations, turning to legend. But what if I told you that many of these creatures are still spotted today? I call these Monstrous Moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's Monstrous Encounter. Today for a Monstrous Moment, we will be talking about the Skunk Ape. He is known by many names, Florida's Bigfoot, Louisiana's Bigfoot, 
Stink Ape, and Swamp Squash. My goodness, try to say that five times fast. The story of the skunk ape goes back hundreds of years. The indigenous people had stories of this creature living deep in the swamps of the Everglades, but is also believed to live in other southeastern states. The skunk ape looks a lot like the Bigfoot known to live in California, Washington, and Oregon, but he is shorter than his cousin to the west. The skunk ape is also said to have long patches of fur on his shoulders and arms, like an orangutan. His hair is a rust red color, and he has a pale ring around his eyes. When settlers first arrived in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama, they spoke of a foul-smelling, large and strong creature that the indigenous people called Istikapik, which means cannibal giant. In 1818, there was a report of a man-sized monkey or ape on two legs who was raiding food stores and stalking fishermen. Reports of skunk ape sightings really ramped up in the 1960s and 70s, with many accounts of people seeing a foul-smelling, hairy ape-like creature. The Florida Everglades has its own skunk ape headquarters. A man named Dave Shelley is the owner of the skunk ape headquarters in Florida. Dave claimed to have seen the skunk ape as a child, and that sparked his interest. He has since seen the skunk ape three more times, and he even took a video in 2000 of what he claimed is a skunk ape in a field. His photo and video is world famous, being featured in the Smithsonian Magazine, Discovery Channel, History Channel, and Animal Planet, and many more. The day he took the video, he was not even out looking for the skunk ape. Dave said he was just out looking to get some photos of deer for his hunting buddies, and then the skunk ape suddenly appeared in the field and he was able to get it on video. Dave's goal is to gain awareness of the skunk ape species. They also encourage you to take tours of the Everglades National Park and bring awareness to how important the ecosystem is in the Everglades. Dave and his son Jack go out and conduct studies for the skunk ape and investigate reports of the skunk ape sightings. The skunk ape is really popular down in Florida, and this year at Gatorland, I know that they even had skunk ape be their mascot for their Halloween celebration this year. It was actually so cool, you guys. I wish I could have been there. I watched it through videos, so that's the only reason I know. But Gatorland has its own train ride, and for Halloween, they had a spooky voice take over the train ride, and they hid, like, real-looking cryptids in the scenery of places they went. So they had, like, Nessie, the Mothman, giant arachnids, um, Jersey Devil, things like that, and they were, like, statues of them, but they looked so cool, and they really looked real, like how people would describe them. If you're having cabin fever like me and you're looking for a fun video of that train ride and what Gatorland offers, I will link a, a video of uh, one of my other favorite YouTubers, uh, Super Enthused. She did a great video on Gatorland. I will link that down below if you want to check that out to see what the train ride was like. And also, Skunk Ape made an appearance. Whether you believe in Skunk Ape or not, people are still claiming to have run-ins with the Skunk Ape all throughout the southern states. I do believe in Bigfoot, so why not Skunk Ape? The Skunk Ape is definitely an interesting cousin of Bigfoot, and while we might not ever find proof that he exists, I would like to think he's still out there. Did you know that rating and reviewing your favorite podcast shows on iTunes is one of the best ways to help others find the show? Also, sharing the podcast with your friends and family will help spread the word that Historically Haunted is out there and waiting to be listened to. Please go to my website, historicallyhaunted.net, for more ways to support the show, like links to my Patreon page and more.
love sports. There is a feeling like no other when you play on a team. You feel so much energy and emotions run super high. The crowd also gives off even more energy, and this is especially true for professional and big-name college teams. My favorite sports teams are the San Francisco Giants for baseball, for football it's the 49ers, and for basketball it's the Golden State Warriors. I was once lucky enough to snag tickets with my friend to see a playoff game when the Giants were on their way to their second World Series win, and oh my gosh, that game had an energy that I have never felt before. And I have been to that ballpark many times, but that playoff game was insane. The Giants won, and it was one of the best days of my life, and I will never forget it. Do you guys remember my theater episode? If you haven't listened to it, I talked about how theaters held a different type of energy and it being an ancient art form. Well, sports are also a lot like that. Sports have been played in one form or another for thousands of years. And with all the energy crowds bring in game after game, year after year, it's no wonder that these sports stadiums would be the perfect cocktail for some paranormal activity. Some of the ghosts I'm going to be covering are not even players of old or even old coaches. It's the perfect energy cocktail that seems to give ghosts the right kind of energy to manifest. I'm going to be discussing a little bit of sports history and then we will take a deep dive into the haunted stadiums that are full of ghosts, urban legends, curses, and even some true crime. Sports have been around in one form or another since the dawn of time. Ever since humans decided to get competitive and make a game out of some sticks and some rocks, little did they know that thousands of years later, sports would become a national pastime and a multi-million dollar business. But playing sports has always been in our DNA. Scientists believe that as humans evolved in some cultures, hunting and gathering gave way to farming, and many men who were once needed to be physically built for hunting began to find other means of entertainment, and this paved the way for what we now know today as modern sports. The first mention of an organized sport actually comes to us from cave paintings that were found in the Lascaux Caves in France. These paintings are from the late Stone Age and are about 15,300 years old. They depict sparring and wrestling. There is another cave painting that was found in, and I'm probably going to butcher this, so I'm sorry, but I think it's pronounced Bayangkokur province in Mongolia. These paintings show a wrestling match that was surrounded by a crowd, and this painting dates back to 7,000 BCE. Rock carvings found near Gilfkibur in Egypt shows men partaking in swimming and archery competitions that are believed to have been done annually since 10,000 BCE. And there are also cave paintings in Japan from the same time period that show people partaking in a sport similar to today's sumo wrestling. These types of events were also used as a type of military game to prepare men to fight in armies. Perhaps the most famous sporting event ever known to man is the Olympics. The ancient Greeks first recorded the Olympics in 776 BCE. The first of these games were held in Olympia and were played every four years. It was a big celebration and the first games only had one sprinting race, but it soon expanded to include foot races and a fun fact, they did two different types of races. One type had men running in the nude and the other race had men running in full armor. They also had boxing, wrestling, pancration, which was one of the world's first mixed martial arts, chariot racing, long jump, javelin throw, and discus throw. Some of these events are still used today in the Olympics, but thankfully not the naked race. During the Olympic celebration, there was 
was even an Olympic truce that was created to make sure that the athletes got to and from the games safely. After the Romans took over, they had their own kind of games with the bloody and brutal gladiator fights. In Mexico, the Mayan civilization thrived from 550 to 900 AD. The Mayan people played many kinds of sports, but they are most famous for developing an elaborate game that today is called Mayan ball game. They built special ball courts for these games, and they had a sideways hoop that was put on a wall that a ball could pass through. Picture a basketball hoop made of stone and then turn it on its side and it stick it to a stone wall. And that's basically what this hoop looked like, only a lot more elaborate with some ornamental decorations on top. The object of the game was to get the ball through the hoops on the wall for points. The ball was made of rubber and the game rules varied depending on level of play. Some versions of the game made it so that you could only use your hips to pass the ball around, but others included rackets, forearms, or even sometimes bats. This game was played for fun by families, but it was also used for serious rituals and sacrifices to the gods. The largest ball court was built at... 225 feet wide and 554 feet long. This ball court was not for fun and games. This court was built specifically with two temples on each side and it was used to appease the gods. This game had two teams play against each other and the losing side's captain had to let the other team's captain chop his head off as a sacrifice. This was considered a great honor and the winning captain was thought to be allowed to go straight to heaven and bypass all of their many steps to get to heaven. The Middle Ages also had sporting events. Several countries had their own games similar to modern day football. And when I say football, I mean American NFL. So think the guys with the pads and the hitting and all that stuff, not football, because this is so confusing for me as an American. Um, we call football soccer here. And um, I know that in Great Britain, they call soccer football. So then it confuses me because whenever I say football, someone else pictures soccer and I'm really talking about like the NFL game. So when I'm saying football in this context, I'm talking about the NFL version. Florence, Italy played a game called Calcio, and England played a game called, and I think you pronounce it Trovatide football, and in England they played a game called Ked. And again, I'm sorry if I pronounced those games wrong. Skipping forward to 1869, when the Olympic Games were reinstated and the idea of a professional athlete was born. And now we have what we have today, a Summer Olympic Games that happens every four years and a Winter Olympic game that also happens every four years and they alternate every two years. So pretty much every two years you get an Olympics, whether it's summer or winter. It's so awesome. Equality has also taken a front row seat in sports because we now have the Paralympics where athletes with a range of disabilities can compete in sporting events. They also have the Special Olympics that is the world's largest sports organization for children and adults with intellectual and physical disabilities. They provide year-round training and activities to 5 million people around the world. Over the last 100 years, women have come into the wide world of sports as well, and now they are just as famous as the men athletes. With the passing of the education amendment called Title IX, America made it law that public schools have to have equal amount of sports teams for boys and girls. So that way girls could have equal opportunity as the boys to play sports. So it's basically if the boys have four sports a year to choose from, then the girls have to have four sports a year to choose from. And now for the most part, organized sports are what they are today with football, basketball, soccer, baseball, volleyball, softball, hockey, lacrosse, swimming, track and field, tennis, rugby, horse racing, and one of my my personal favorites to watch during the Winter Olympics, curling. And there are way more sports than I just listed. Personally, I love the Olympics. And when they are on, I try to not miss a single event. I even record them so I won't miss anything. I love watching them all, but personally, I love the 
gymnastics and swimming during the summer and then my other favorites are snowboarding events as well as figure skating for the winter. As cheesy as it might sound I even uh, throw a little like party during the opening games for the opening ceremonies. I even do food for the country that it's being hosted in and then we kind of decorate the house up with like all USA colors. It's kind of fun. Now that you've heard this quick history of sports it might help you understand that sports are more than just fun in games. They have been used as a way to be vicious with people and get away with it for thousands of years. Throughout history, many of these sporting events would have been a fight to the death. While today we play them just for fun, the emotions that go on during a game are still intense, and it is no wonder that all that energy might be the perfect energetic environment for ghosts to thrive. There's the play. Quarterback has the ball, fades back, and there's the throw. It goes long, down the 50, the 40, the 30. There's the catch, and he's going for it. It's a touchdown! So I'm going to be running through these as a list, and up first, we have Camp Randall Stadium. Today, the National Football League, or NFL for short, has only two teams that play in a stadium built before World War II. When it comes to college games, nine teams play in a stadium built before World War II in the Big Ten. If you don't know what the Big Ten is, in America, both men and women collegiate sports are almost as big as professional sports, and the colleges are divided into conferences. The Big Ten is one of the oldest organized conferences that originally had 10 schools, but now it has 14. Why keep the Big Ten? I don't know. I mean, it is hard to get Americans to break from tradition. Most of the schools in the Big Ten are found in the upper Midwest. The oldest stadium in the Big Ten is Camp Randall. The stadium is located in Madison, Wisconsin. Camp Randall is home to a college football team, the Wisconsin Badgers. Some of you might be going, Camp Randall, that doesn't sound like a football stadium name. Well, it's called Camp Randall because during the Civil War, 70,000 Union troops trained in the exact location that the field is on today, and it was called Camp Randall. They also had a prison camp for captured Confederate soldiers that was near the camp. Once the war was over, the land was picked to become building lots, but the veterans from the Civil War rallied around the sacred land, and they convinced the state to buy the land instead. They also asked that the name never be changed from Camp Randall, and the name has stayed the same to this day. The area surrounding the stadium is now the University of Wisconsin, and yes, the university is supposedly also plagued with ghosts from the Civil War. The Badgers started playing on the land in 1895, the same year the Big Ten was created. When American football first started, it was nothing like we know today. Most teams played on empty flat land with goalposts on either side and hand-painted lines on the field, and sometimes the field was even just dirt. People just stood around the edges to watch. It wasn't until 1917 that they decided to build a stadium around the field so people could sit above the field and get a much better view of the game. Today, the stadium is in the exact same spot that it was then, but it is now a modern-day stadium. But it is still the oldest stadium in the Big Ten Conference. Many people might not know the history of this land, and that might be why this has been quite a shock when people see ghosts from the Civil War wandering around the now modern stadium. Today, the parking lot is known for tailgate parties. While people are pre-gaming out there, many have claimed to see men in Confederate and Union uniforms wandering around near the edge of the lot before they vanish. Others have said they have seen these ghosts in uniform walk right through the parking lot into the stadium itself as if the party was not happening and the stadium wasn't even there. 
Workers either getting ready for the stadium to open or cleaning up at night have heard footsteps as if someone is walking behind them, lights turning on and off on their own, full-bodied apparitions of both Confederate and Union soldiers have been seen walking throughout the rooms of the broadcasting booths when they are completely empty. These full-bodied apparitions have also been seen walking straight across the field and vanish at the other side. After doing research on the stadium, I would say that it's probably just residual energy since the ghosts seem to be going about their day-to-day -day activities and don't pay any attention to the living around them. Up next, we have the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto, Canada. While this isn't exactly a stadium, I thought the ghost story was really cool, so I decided to cover this. On June 12, 1939, the Commissioner of Baseball officially opened the National Baseball Museum and the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. He also claimed Cooperstown to be the home of baseball. This caused people involved in hockey to think, why shouldn't their sport have a Hall of Fame? James T. Sutherland, captain of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, led the push to establish a Hockey Hall of Fame. He considered Kingstown, Ontario to be the birthplace of hockey and pushed for the Hall of Fame to be built there. The Hockey Hall of Fame was established in 1943 before a building was constructed. There were many delays in construction, mainly due to the high costs and lack of funds. James T. Sutherland sadly passed away on September 30, 1955. The NHL decided to move the Hockey Hall of Fame to Toronto, and it opened at Exhibition Place in 1961. In 1993, the Hall of Fame was relocated to Brookfield Place in Toronto. Brookfield Place was built in 1885, and it was originally the location of the Bank of Montreal. It cost the NHL $27 million to renovate the site. The Hockey Hall of Fame covers 65,000 square feet. You can learn all about the history of hockey here. It has a large collection of hockey artifacts from around the world and representing all levels of play. You will find uniforms, equipment, trophies, and full-size animated figures that you can go one-on-one -on -one with. They even have a replica of an NHL dressing room. It showcases the game's greatest players and teams, and there are several themed galleries such as Historic Winter Olympics, and another themed gallery is called Masks. This exhibit has artifacts of sports masks from pre-modern civilizations to today's hockey masks. This is definitely a great place for all you hockey fans, but the building is known for something else. It's Resident Ghost. For years now, people who have visited this building have reported seeing a woman in a powder blue dress with long, dark hair hanging out around the second floor women's bathroom. This ghost is thought to be Dorothea. Dorothea's story is tragic and it is not an urban legend. Dorothea May Elliott worked in the building as a bank employee in the 1950s. In March of 1953, when Dorothea was only 19 years old, she shot herself in the women's restroom on the second floor with the bank's revolver. She was described in the papers as a young, attractive brunette, and the papers chalked it up to her being distraught over a love affair. But no one knows the true story. Some rumors flew around that Dorothea might have found out that the owner of the bank was laundering money, and he had her killed to keep her quiet. Some even thought that she might have been a spy for the Irish Republican Army and who were planning to rob the bank to fund their cause, and she got cold feet. Either way, no one knows why she died in the bathroom, and it appears that her ghost is still not ready to leave the building. People have reported hearing the sound of footsteps when the building is closed. 
lights flicker on and off, as well as doors and windows open on their own accord. Security guards have reported hearing the echoing sound of screaming, moaning, and the strange banging sounds throughout the building. An intense, uneasy feeling is reported from women who use the restroom, as well as cold spots and the feeling of being watched. Some staff members have even reported feeling unseen hands on their shoulders. I found some interesting information from an article from The Star, and I have the link down below to cite my sources, but this article talked about some strange occurrences people have had with Dorothea. One account comes from Rob Hayes, who is a special event supervisor. He was in the building in the morning getting ready for an event. He entered the small staff kitchen to get some coffee, and he felt this overwhelming feeling of being watched. He then felt like something was drawing him to an empty conference room that had the lights off. He entered the room, and with what little light he had, he saw that an office chair was spinning on its own. He walked toward it, and it rolled across the floor into his hand. He left the room as fast as he could, and it really freaked him out. And he is a not a believer of ghosts, but that strange encounter really scared him. Another run-in with Dorothea comes to us from the same article, and it was about a young boy who was visiting the Hall of Fame with his father. He started yelling, don't you see her? When they asked the boy what he was talking about, he said that he saw a woman with long dark hair floating in and out of the walls. Kids always can see what adults can't. Up next, we have St. Mary Stadium in Southampton, England. St. Mary Stadium is home to the Premier League European football club, Southampton FC. It became the home stadium in 2001 after moving from the Dell where the club had played for 103 years. In the 1990s, there was a requirement that said that stadiums have to have a seat for each person instead of having a stand-only section. First, the Dell was renovated, but it only had a small seating area, capacity of little over 15,000 people. So the new stadium with the seating capacity of over 32,000 people was built and the team relocated. There is a local legend that states that a group of fans from their rival team, Portsmouth FC, buried their team's jersey in the concrete while the stadium was being built. They also cast a curse on the team while they did this, and the legend gained merit when the team lost its first five matches of the opening season. Another source for a possible curse is the location of the stadium. St. Mary Stadium was built on top of an old Anglo-Saxon settlement called Hemwick. Human remains and grave sites have been found that date back to the 7th century. Archaeologists are still discovering artifacts from the era around the stadium. It was not just the fact that the team was losing every game that made people think this place was cursed. From the beginning of construction, workers claimed of seeing shadow figures darting between the equipment and hearing whispers on the wind. Once the stadium was built, the activity increased. Workers did not want to go into the stadium at night alone due to frequent shadow figure activity. Workers and staff members also claimed to see apparitions walking across the field and then vanishing before reaching the other side. The sound of voices and even strange mists have also been reported. Whether this stadium was cursed by a rival team or the ghosts from an old graveyard who were not happy they got disturbed, the belief in the curse was so strong that the team actually brought in a famous white witch to help. She performed a ritual at the stadium to cleanse the property just hours before the team celebrated its first victory in the new stadium. While the curse of a losing streak might have been lifted, ghosts are still frequently seen throughout the building.
Frontier Field in Rochester, New York has been the home of the AAA Red Wings baseball team since April 11, 1997. Baseball being played in Rochester can be traced back to 1877 when the Rochesters were part of the International Association. The Red Wings became a AAA minor league for the team, the St. Louis Cardinals, in 1929, and they continued to be a part of their farm system until 1960. From 1961 to 2002, the Red Wings became a triple-A team for the Baltimore Orioles. From 2003 to 2020, the Red Wings have been the Minnesota Twins triple-A team. It was recently announced that the Twins will no longer have the Red Wings as part of their organization. The reason they gave is that Major League Baseball teams want to have their small minor league teams close by their parent clubs. The Twins were looking to establish their AAA team in St. Paul, Minnesota. Also, MLB has reduced the number of minor league teams from 160 to 120. But due to the long history of the Red Wings and baseball, the town of Rochester feels it is highly likely that they will have a franchise next year. The rumor was that the Washington Nationals are moving to Rochester since their current AAA team is clean across the country in Fresno, California. This year was the first year without baseball in Rochester since it began in the 1800s. Once the 2020 season was shut down due to COVID-19, the city of Rochester began to show movies on the big screen in the VIP parking lot next to Frontier Field. Frontier Field was built as a replacement for Silver Stadium, which was the home of the Red Wings from 1929 to 1996. Fun fact here, Silver Stadium was also used by the New York Black Yankees of the Negro League for their last season in 1948. Construction began on November 16, 1994 for the new stadium, and it opened on July 11, 1996. There is a local legend that says that bones were discovered on the land while it was being excavated. People aren't sure if the bones were human or animal or if, in fact, they even existed at all. There were also a lot of old buildings on the site that were torn down for the new stadium. One was a schoolhouse and the other was a warehouse from the early 1900s. They found old shoes, books, and other items inside the buildings when they tore it down. There was also an old paper company building. Supposedly, an old janitor haunted the paper company. Many strange things happened inside the stadium. From the moment the team moved in, staff and grounds crews have reported lights turning on in rooms that have been empty and locked all day, as well as TVs turning on and off by themselves. People have reported taking photos to find strange mists or even floating heads in some pictures. Rochester's paranormal investigators visited Frontier Field in 2004, and they officially called the stadium haunted, and had many strange things happen to them while they were investigating. Growing up, I spent lots of time late at night at schools because both my parents were teachers and coaches, which meant I stayed until about 10 o'clock at night some nights. And oh my gosh, schools creep me out at night. There is something about them. They have this weird energy and it's so true. Paranormal activity is really crazy in schools. But Lee Williams High School in Kingsman, Arizona might have more paranormal activity than normal. Kingsman, Arizona is located along Route 66 and 90 five miles southwest of Las Vegas. Lee Williams was a former school principal and firefighter. He died in 1973 while fighting the Kingsman explosion, also called the Doxel disaster. Propane was being transferred from Doxel railroad cars 
two storage tanks, and there was a hairline crack in one of the side of the tankers, and gas was ignited by static electricity. The Kingsman Fire Department arrived and began using water to cool the propane car. Two streams of propane were on fire, and the firefighters were setting up a deluge gun, which would have been able to shoot out much more water to cool the propane car faster. Unfortunately, the heat and pressure had built up too much, and there was a huge explosion. Eleven firefighters were killed, along with one railroad worker and one state trooper. Over 90 onlookers were burned or injured in the blast. In honor of them, the school's mascot is the Volunteers, and they decided to name the new school after Lee Williams, the former principal who died in the blast. Lee Williams High School opened in 2012, and there was a middle school in the location first, but some of those buildings were knocked down and others were remodeled. The location of part of the football field and one section of the bleachers were built on top of the old Pioneer Cemetery. And that, my friends, is why this school is more haunted than other schools. Many of the town's founders were buried here, along with more than 70 Kualapai Native Americans. Some of the Native Americans had unmarked graves. A portion of the graves had been moved in 1945, but not all the bodies were removed because of high cost of $45. During this time, the United States was at war, so the amount of money would have been impossible for many. Construction workers were digging a trench behind the bleachers and discovered 11 grave sites and 7 coffins, and personal items such as jewelry. Archaeologists were called in to deal with the remains and artifacts. Hualapai tribal leaders believed that it would be taboo to move or disturb a body. The spirits would become unrestful and possibly angry. An elder performed a ceremony in order to calm the spirits. He blessed all of the remains and the workers as well. There is also a memorial stone near the bleachers that honors the 350 people who were buried at Pioneer Cemetery. Despite all of these efforts, it appears that the disturbance of the graves left many restless spirits behind. Women in prairie gowns and men in cowboy fashion have been seen throughout the stadium. These spirits have also been seen on the field on graduation days before they vanish into thin air. The whole school is reportedly haunted. The sound of little children giggling and playing down dark hallways at night have been heard. Lights turn on and off on their own, and security alarms being set off for no reason are frequent. But the stadium is thought to be the most terrifying place on campus. Many students and staff have claimed to get an overwhelming feeling of being watched, as well as feeling like something is following right behind them. The sound of voices and murmured talking also is heard throughout the stadium when it is completely empty. Not every ghost in this location is bad. Some also think that the ghost of Lee Williams comes back to check in on the school that was named after him. His presence is described as feeling calm and steady, as though Mr. Williams is just looking out for the students and staff at the school that was named after him. Wrigley Field is the second oldest baseball stadium still in use for Major League Baseball games. It was previously named Northside Baseball Park, Wigman Park, Cubs Park, and then finally Wrigley Field in 1927. William Wrigley renamed the ballpark after his gum company. That same year, the grandstands were moved and the upper deck was added. The famous ivy in the outfield walls was added in 1934. Lights were finally added to Wrigley Field in 1988. 
The history is strong with this park. So many famous things have happened here. Just to highlight a few famous things that happened in this park was the 1917 pitching duel between the Cubs and the Cincinnati Reds, Babe Ruth's famous called home run during the 1932 World Series game, Ruth gestured to the outfield just before hitting a homer into the bleachers. Cubs player and Hall of Fame Ernie Banks hit his 500th homer in 1970. While many famous and extraordinary things happened in this ballpark, the stadium is also believed to have been cursed. On October 6, 1945, a man named William bought two tickets to see the third game in the World Series. The Cubs were playing the Tigers, and the Cubs had already won two games so far in the series. Cubs fans thought that a World Series win was in the bag. That was until William tried to enter the stadium. You see, William owned a local bar called Billy Goat Tavern, and he had a pet goat named Murphy that was his mascot for his bar. Who was the second ticket for? None other than his pet goat, Murphy. Now, this is where the legend splits. Some versions say that William showed up at the gate and security would not let him enter with his goat. Another version says that William and Murphy were allowed to go to their seats, but then the people around them complained and William and Murphy were escorted out. Whatever version of the story, it really doesn't matter because it was said that William got so angry for being asked to leave that he screamed out a curse that the Cubs will never win the World Series game ever again. After he made this curse, strange things started to happen in the stadium. The rest of that game was awful for the Cubs. There were weird mistakes made by seasoned players, and the Cubs went on to lose the World Series. A few years after this happened, black cats started to show up out of nowhere on the field interrupting play. Once during a game in June in 1969, a cat walked between the Cubs' dugout and a player, Ron Santon, and the Cubs lost the game horribly. This cat appeared out of nowhere and then disappeared as soon as it came. The players and fans truly thought that the Cubs were cursed and tried a lot of different things to try to break it. Even the man who made the curse, William, felt bad and tried to undo it to no avail. They even let a descendant of the goat Murphy come to a game to try to break the curse, and that didn't seem to work either. This curse was so famous that the Billy Goat Tavern had a counter that counted how many times the Cubs had lost, as well as how long it had been since they last won a World Series. In 2003, the Cubs made it to the World Series and were leading three three games to two against the Florida Marlins. The Cubs had home field advantage for the next game and they were up three to nothing only to have what today is famously known as the Steve Bartman incident. On October 14, 2003, in the eighth inning of game six, Luis Castillo was up for the Marlins and hit a fly ball into left field foul territory. Cubs outfielder named Moises Allo ran to the wall to catch the ball, but then a man named Steve Bartman reached out his hand over the glove of Allo, knocking the ball away into the seats. This would have been the second out. This play was deemed fan interference and Castillo was allowed to go to second base. The Cubs ended up losing that game 8-3, and then they lost the World Series altogether in Game 7 the very next day. To Cubs fans, this was proof that the curse still exists. And let me just say this, if you have never been to a baseball game, and if you go for the first time and you get to sit near the edge, do not reach for the ball. Get out of the way. Let the player even fall over the wall to catch it and fall onto you before you reach for that ball. Once you do this, you will be on the list of shame, just like poor Steve. Any person that has ever done this, especially for a huge game, are blacklisted. They become the most hated in the city, and as for what happened to Steve, the whole crowd chucked things like cups, hot dogs, and popcorn cups, and also booed him out of the stadium. It was so intense that he was forced to leave the game with a security escort. 
The ball was bought and then destroyed by fans who were hoping that that would help end the curse. The curse lasted 108 years until it was finally broken in 2016 when the Cubs defeated the Cleveland Indians. No one knows what finally broke the curse, but it was a big deal when they did. This curse is not the only thing that Wrigley Field is famous for. There is a resident ghost that is called Grimm. Charlie Grimm played first base for the Chicago Cubs in the mid-1920s. He took over as manager for the Cubs in 1932 and had a career that lasted over 20 years. He got a good record winning three pennants and made it to the World Series in 1932. Although they didn't win that game, it was still a great record for him. He absolutely loved the Cubs, which might explain why his ghost is thought to be the main haunt. Night security guards have reported hearing the phone inside the bullpen ring when no one is in the dugout. People think it's Grimm calling to make a pitching change. Guards have also claimed to see his apparition pacing back and forth in the dugout and also down the halls. Guards have also heard their own names being called from somewhere in the dark field. The University of Notre Dame is located in South Bend, Indiana. It was founded on November 26, 1842 by Father Edward Soren from the Congregation of Holy Cross. Forty-five years later, the first American football game in Notre Dame took place on November 23, 1887. Notre Dame lost to University of Michigan 8-0. Newt Rockney was head coach from 1918 to 1930, and the team won three national championships and had a record of 150 wins, 12 losses, and 5 ties during his time as coach. Rockney died in a plane crash on March 31, 1931. He was only 43 years old. TWA Flight 5 599 crashed in the Flint Hills of Kansas. The university added a football stadium to its campus in 1930. Newt Rockney played a part in its design. The sod from the school's original football field, Carter Field, was replanted to the new stadium and Rockney insisted that only football be played there. Due to his tragic death in 1931, Rockney only coached in the new stadium for one year. The campus, like many other college campuses, is very haunted, but the stadium is haunted by a ghost affectionately called the Gripper. The story is a sad one. One cold night in December of 1920, a young man named George Grip was out late celebrating his last football game with the Fighting Irish. He stayed out so late that by the time he got back to his dormitory at Washington Hall, the doors were locked. He decided not to try to sneak in and risk getting caught, being out past curfew, so he slept on a bench outside. Grip caught a combination of strep throat and pneumonia, and he died three weeks later in the hospital at the age of only 25. Gip was just awarded as Notre Dame's first All-American before his death. The legend of the Gipper was so strong that a movie was made starring Ronald Reagan as Gipper in the movie titled Newt Rockney All-American. It is the ghost of Gipper that is the most famous here. After Gipper died, students inside Washington Hall started to hear strange sounds. The sound of papers rustling in empty rooms, banging, knocking, and footsteps in the stairway have also been reported. Other frequent activities include moving objects, curtains moving on their own, the sound of brass instruments being played down hallways, and an overwhelming feeling of not being alone when you are. Gipper's ghost is also known to haunt the stadium. Many think that he likes to watch his alma mater play football. When he makes his presence known, he is described as a friendly ghost. Some think that he is just looking out for his fellow students, making sure that they don't get locked out of Washington Hall. For our last haunted stadiums, I'm going to be doing a two-in-one because two stadiums are haunted by the same ghost, the Detroit Lions and the New York Giants. The NFL's Detroit Lions returned to Detroit in 2002 to a brand new stadium, 
Ford Field. They had left Detroit in 1975 and played their games at the Silverdome Stadium in Pontiac, Michigan. This is the fifth stadium that the team has played in since 1930. The field has 65,000 seats and a permanent dome roof due to Detroit's harsh winters. The whole south wall of the stadium is made of the 1920s Hudson Warehouse. Giant Stadium was home field for the New York Giants from October 1976 until 2010. It is located in East Rutherford, New Jersey, in Meadowlands Sports Complex. This part of New Jersey is part of the New York metropolitan area. The New York Jets began playing here also after they left their old stadium in 1984. The Jets did not draw fans to their new location for several seasons, and the Giants stadium became outdated. In the early 2000s, both teams decided to partner to build a new stadium next door. Giant Stadium was demolished during the winter and spring of 2010, and the new MetLife Stadium opened up in August 2010. Both these stadiums, the Detroit Lions Stadium and the New York Giants Stadium, are connected by one ghost that haunts both locations. This is the ghost of Jimmy Hoffa. If that name sounds familiar, it's because his disappearance and death is one of the most famous unsolved crimes. Jimmy Hoffa was a notorious gangster who was president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union from 1959 to 1971. Jimmy Hoffa was famous, and he had a kind of weird cult following around him, even though he was a bloodthirsty and power-hungry man. Even Robert Kennedy himself called Hoffa the second most influential man in America, outranked in power only by the president himself. Quick backstory on Hoffa so you understand why and how this guy became such a big deal. Jimmy Hoffa was born in Brazil, Indiana on February 14, 1913. He lost his father at a young age and had to drop out of school at age 14. He had to work hard to bring in money for his family since his dad passed away and working during this time was rough. Working conditions were dangerous back then. Unions were also seen as a nuisance and job bosses wanted to crush the spirits of men who wanted to form any type of union. Supporters of unions wanted to fight for better safety and pay. Owners of big factory and mining companies would pay off the cops and sometimes street gangs to come in and violently break up any strikes. Even whispering about forming a union could get you fired. In the 1930s, when Hoffa was age 19 and working in Detroit, he joined a small group of warehouse workers to help protect working conditions. Even I have to admit, this guy knew how to make people listen to him. He was working at a train loading dock for the Kroger Grocery Store Company, and he had all the men go on strike at the perfect time. The workers got a huge load of fresh strawberries that had to be unloaded and put on ice quickly or they would all spoil. Now, for Kroger, that's thousands of dollars down the drain. So Hoffa had his group of men all stop working and refuse to move the strawberries until the bosses agreed to their terms for better pay and safer working conditions. After a little standoff with Hoffa in the lead, they agreed to a better yet temporary contract. After this, he gained quite a reputation, and soon he joined the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. He worked his way up the ladder in the union and finally became union president. Once he did that, he got involved in organized crime. <laughs> 
As the Great Depression worsened and Prohibition was in full swing, the union talks increased. The bosses of big-name companies used the mafia to break up the strikes and specifically target union members. And by that, I mean almost killing members of the union so that they would have to stop working. Then the company would replace them with workers who would swear not to join a union. Jimmy Hoffa decided quickly that his union would have to play just as dirty as the mafia and get involved with organized crime. While Hoffa was never convicted of murder in the courts, it is believed that he was not someone you wanted to cross. Hoffa formed an inner circle, and he had key mob boss players on his side. Two of his most trusted were Lucky Luciano and Frank Costello. They took care of problems Hoffa had with others. This also gave Hoffa more muscle to keep the union going. Before long, Hoffa had a big number of stakeholders deep in the political and legal worlds. While he had many people in his pocket, he would also make lots of enemies, including the Kennedy brothers. Hoffa and Robert Kennedy hated one another. The brother of then-Senator John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy became fascinated with taking Hoffa down, and he tried many times. Hoffa was brought to Washington for a hearing, but was not convicted that time. A few years later, the FBI made a case against him, and he was finally convicted of jury tampering, bribery, conspiracy, along with mail and wire fraud. He was sentenced to 13 years in prison, but he was released after only five years when President Richard Nixon got him out. He was not allowed to return to being president of the union, but he was still running things from the inside. And of course, knowing Nixon's track record, it's no wonder why that happened, because in return, Hoffa's old union endorsed Nixon for his re-election. By 1975, Hoffa was trying to re-establish himself with the Detroit Mafia. On July 30th, he went to meet with two Mafia connections. The meeting was supposed to be held at 2 o'clock p.m. at the Marcus Red Fox restaurant in a Detroit suburb. The men never arrived, and Hoffa called his wife to vent about being stood up. He then told her he would be home by 4 o'clock to help cook dinner, but he never arrived. His wife called her son and daughter to tell them that Hoffa, their father, had never come home and that she was worried about him. While their daughter was on the way home to continue the search for Hoffa, she claimed that she had a strange vision of her father dead. She described the exact clothing that Hoffa was wearing when he went missing, but there was no way for her to have known the clothing her father was wearing that day. So that's a little weird paranormal theme here. Hoffa's good friend went to the restaurant and found Hoffa's car in the parking lot. It was unlocked and there was no sign of Hoffa. The police were called in and then the FBI came to investigate. To give you guys an idea of how big of a deal this was, this would be like if someone as big and famous as, say, Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg went missing today and was never seen again. Hoffa's disappearance had many theories, but like I said, this guy had many enemies that would benefit from him being gone, so no one really knows what happened. The case is still cold to this day, and I went down so many rabbit holes with this case trying to just type this short blurb. I could have done a whole episode about this if I wanted to go into true crime podcasting, which I am not. But like I said in the beginning, his ghost is said to haunt two separate stadiums. See, there was a theory that the mafia took Hoffa because he had information that the FBI wanted, and he was going to give it in exchange for him being able to be president of his union again. And like I said, this is just one of many theories. But this theory goes like this. The mafia put a hit out on Hoffa and the meeting was a setup to get Hoffa alone. He disappeared never to be seen again except for his ghost form. His ghost has apparently been seen and heard in the New York Giant Stadium. It is believed that Hoffa's body was buried in concrete in one of the field's end zones or within the structure itself while it was being built. The TV show Mythbusters brought in 
special equipment to try to locate the body, but they were unable to find it. Body or no body, when this field was in operation, it was said that night security guards would hear the sound of muffled voices yelling from the dark field. Hoffa's ghost also likes to check in on his favorite team, the Detroit Lions. He has been seen sitting in the stadium as if he is watching a game before vanishing. He has also been heard cheering on his team loudly in an empty stadium. Anything strange that happens in these stadiums are both blamed on Hoffa's ghost. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode of Historically Haunted. I had a lot of fun covering all these haunted stadiums, and I also found a bunch more information about haunted places that baseball teams go to. I found a couple of really creepy hotels that some teams to this day refuse to go back to, so I'm definitely going to be talking about those in the future. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also, if you want to become a Patreon member, I have that link down below. My next topic I'm going to be covering for my Patreon members is going to be Haunted Hollywood. So I'm super excited about that. I hope you guys have a fantastic couple of weeks. I'll see you guys back here again real soon. Oh, and don't forget to email me your personal paranormal true story at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com so I can do it for my Christmas listener episode. All right, everyone. I hope you guys are saying hello healthy and safe, and I'll see you guys back here again soon on Historically Haunted. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.